Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. It begins and says, Take a census of the sons of Gershom also, by their father's households, by their families. Take a census. The word take, the Hebrew there is not so. And that is the name of this Torah portion. Before we get into this Torah portion, I want to tell you a couple of things that are very interesting about this portion. First of all, it is the longest Torah portion in the entire teaching of the Torah. There are more verses, 179 verses are in this Torah portion. Of all the Torah portions, you'd think, well, gee, back there in Genesis, that would be probably one. No, it's here in Numbers. The second one in the book of Numbers is the longest one. Of all the commentary that has been written on the various portions of the Torah, and there's many things in the Torah to write commentary on, this portion, this Torah portion, has more commentary written on it from a Jewish perspective than any other single portion. So there's some very fascinating things that are to be discussed in this portion. In fact, this Torah portion really has six different topics. And my dilemma tonight is I only have approximately an hour to try to give you an overview of six topics that in and of themselves, each one could take an hour. So there is no way that in tonight's session I'm going to be able to adequately teach all that is here, but maybe whet your appetite so that you might go back and look, because there's some very, very profound and interesting things that are, that are uh, spoken of here. The first thing, why do they call it Naso? What's the meaning? I always share with you that there's a special meaning in the names of the Torah portions. This word Naso is a very interesting word. It means take or lift up or, or, or to, uh, to, uh, to raise up. And in this case, he's saying, take a census of the sons of Gershom. And it's literally, it's going to be the census of the tribe of Levi. Now, if you were here last week, in last week's portion, they numbered all the tribes of Israel, save the Levites. And now this portion, we take a census of the Levites. There's three groups within the Levites, the Gershomites, the Kohanites, and the Merarites. The Kohanites are the sons of Aaron. They are the priests, the ones who render the service in the inner sanctuary. The Gershomites and the Merarites, these are the ones, now listen to this, these are the ones who are going to be given the responsibility to take and lift up the tabernacle. Same word. Take up, lift them up, because they'll be lifting up the tabernacle, is what it's saying. And there is a great lesson and principle to be determined in this, in that in the, it is the order of God's people that those who have the task to lift up the tabernacle, to lift up uh, the work of the Lord, they are lifted up by others. That all of us have a part in taking up and lifting up those that would serve the Lord. We all work cooperatively together. We pool our resources together. We encourage one another. No one is exempt. Everyone can do part of the task of taking up or lifting up. And that's part of what the great lesson is here. Paul instructs us that we should take up the burdens of our own brethren. In effect, when you do it, you're like a Levite, lifting up the tabernacles of God the parts that belong to the tabernacle of God, because every brother in the Lord is one of the tabernacles of the Lord. 
And so we do this same work of lifting them up uh, when we lift up one of our fellow brethren. Now, maybe you didn't realize there was such a noble cause behind ministering to one another, but there is. It's to take up and to lift up for the brethren. And this is what is taught for us in Numbers chapter 4. Now, leaving that and moving on to to uh, some of the other more important principles that I want to touch on tonight. When we get into uh, chapter uh, 5, there is a very interesting principle about the whole business about dealing with the unclean in the midst of the camp. And the instruction is, rather than waiting for it to just kind of walk off or drift off, you have to take affirmative action to remove that which is the unclean. And in an assembly, if, uh, if there is an issue that presents itself as being unclean and damaging to the rest of the assembly, you have to take affirmative action with regard to it. It is part of the task. Um, as I've shared with you before, one of the marks of leadership, one of the signs of leadership, is how one deals with conflict. How does one deal with when there's an issue amongst brethren? And that will be the mark and the legacy of the leadership as to how they conduct and they do that. If they will remember that it is their brethren, not their enemies. If they will remember that it's probably based on misunderstanding and ignorance, not willful. If they will remember to do it the way the Lord has treated them. In that manner, that will become the mark of the, the, uh, the appearance of how that leadership, the wisdom of that leadership to go forth. So this gives us important principles with regard to this. Now we come to a portion in, in Numbers chapter 5, which is a very interesting portion, which is called the Law of Jealousy. Uh, approximately a year ago, I taught this. There is a huge message in this, in this Law of Jealousy. It begins down in Numbers chapter 5, where it says in verse 11, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in the earthenware vessel, and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands which is the grain offering of jealousy, and in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. And the priest shall have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray into uncleanliness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and you have defiled yourself and with a man, 
uh, man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse. And the priest shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people by the Lord making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. And this water that brings the curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. It's a very interesting procedure. The, the procedure went something like this. Let's say that the man, the husband, thinks that his wife has been unfaithful, but he can't. There's no eyewitness. There's no proof. But it's eaten him alive. And he's disturbed by this. He thinks there's a possibility. He's got to, he's got to get this resolved. Maybe she's denied it. But he still is not satisfied. To resolve this matter, he can take his wife down to the temple, down to the priest, have her go in, stand before the Lord, and what they do is they offer the grain offering before the Lord, the barley offering, and the priest gathers up dust off the floor of the temple and pours it into an earthen vessel with water, and she has to take a drink. With the idea in mind that if she drinks and there is no curse that comes upon her, she has spoken the truth and, the, and that the husband has no reason to be jealous. And at that point, they're reunited. But if there is a curse that comes, then she becomes a sign and an omen to all of Israel. It's an embarrassment before all of Israel for her. And the husband is, can be done with her. What generally happened in this, and by the way, this did happen on occasion, what generally happened was the woman usually broke down and confessed and confessed before the Lord. The husband saw that the woman had confessed before the Lord and said, I should, if the Lord is going to forgive her, then I should forgive her. And they would be reunited right there at the temple. And when they would leave the temple, they would go home healed. And the issue is taken care of. It's resolved. If she wouldn't, well, then we would see what the results are. In either case, it's going to be resolved one way or the other. It's going to be over and done with. Now, I know that in some of you are thinking, and this comes from our American culture, some of you are saying, what about the procedure for the guy? You know, what if the wife is wondering about the jealousy of the husband? There is no procedure. There is no procedure for that. There is a procedure, though, over this issue of jealousy. It's not because men have a weakness and they just get jealous a lot. We're talking about something that is a very real phenomena that could possibly happen. There's not a man that wouldn't experience the jealousy. It is a procedure um, that was very necessary. Now, there's a different law than this one if the woman is caught in the actual act of adultery. If she's actually caught in the act of adultery, she's brought forward, and there the penalty is death. There's no drink, drink dirt from a glass or nothing like that. It's, it's get stoned. You remember when Yeshua was there in the temple teaching in the temple and a whole group of Pharisees brought the woman up and who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they said, Moses tells us that this is what we were supposed to do with her, stone her. What do you say? That was a different law from this particular one. But if you recall in that story of what happened with Yeshua, Jesus, it says that he bent down and he gathered up some dust in the bottom of the temple floor and began to run his finger through it. There's been lots of conjecture and, and different ideas about what in the world was he doing. Was he writing their names in there? What, what? But in any case, he stood up and he gave a quick answer. He gave the exact answer that Moses gives. 
And he says, to he who is without sin, let him be the first to cast the stone. Now, what Moses said was, he who is the witness, he who is the witness, let him be the first to cast the stone. That the witness must be the first participant in the death penalty, and others may then join in. Yeshua stood up and he said, let the witnesses be the first to cast the stones. Now, in that story of the encounter with the adulterous woman, it says that the old men left first. I thought that was kind of interesting. The old men left first, and then the younger men drifted off, and finally there was nobody there. Nobody could answer the question as to who was the eyewitness. Because if there's, there's something that you have to ask yourself. If you're an eyewitness to the act of adultery, what were you doing there? And how is it that you're innocent being there present? How is that possible? Isn't that interesting? Now, these men obviously knew of her reputation. And maybe they even knew of her reputation directly. But when it came time for this judgment, for this issue with it, nobody wanted to admit, yes, I was there and I saw it all. Because then there was all kinds of questions to be asked of them. And in particular, Yeshua said he was playing with the dust. The dust. I think that what really was going on was something that had to do with this passage. Because Israel is known to be the bride of God. And Israel, brethren, has committed adultery many times with other gods. And our God, the God we serve, is a God who is a jealous God. And the fact of the matter is that the judgment that Israel has to go through is called the law of jealousy, the trial by ordeal. Because God, our Father, our bridegroom, has the right to bring his bride in and have her stand directly before and answer the question and take this test, this trial by ordeal, to see if we've committed adultery with other gods or whether we have been faithful and been under his authority. And I believe that he posed to these men, you are the men who represent Israel. Are you prepared to take this test? Are you prepared to drink of the dust of the floor of the temple to see who will receive a curse and who will not? And for some reason, I think they got it. And they all laughed. They don't want to take that test. Have you ever heard of a thing in the Bible called uh, Jacob's Trouble? Or a thing called the 70th week of Israel, or the Great Tribulation. It's called the trial by ordeal. It's when God is going to put Israel to the test. We're going to take a drink from a certain cup, and we're going to be measured to see if a curse comes on us or whether we'll be delivered. And the issue, the only issue is going to be, are we faithful and are we going to be faithful to our husband, the Lord? That's what the tribulation is all about. That's the reason why God has it. That's the reason why we're going to go through it. For those people who say there is no such tribulation that we as believers will have to go through, they're like the rabbis. The rabbis say this law has gone away. There is no more law of jealousy. The rabbis didn't have the authority to make it go away. 
And I can assure you that the Great Tribulation will definitely happen on this world, and there will be believers here, and we will go through the trial by ordeal. Now, the key to getting through that, because we do serve a jealous God, is for him not to be jealous about us or to be ready for the trial by ordeal. To be ready. You know what the indicator is here that the bride is ready for this test? When she says, Amen and Amen. That's the first time that we see in the Torah the word Amen. The word Amen that we so cavalierly speak of, that we use in religious practice, it is the signal to God our husband, that we're ready for the trial by ordeal. Anytime you want it, Lord, we're ready. Bring it on. So cavalier, we use this word, amen. I think we use this word, amen, and we're not ready. We're not ready for the test that comes. But we should be. Whole new meaning on the word, amen, isn't it? indicating that we're supposed to be ready for this test. It goes on and it concludes in this portion. Verse 29, this is the law of jealousy. When a wife being under the authority of her husband goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man shall be free from guilt but that woman shall bear her guilt. The Lord will be free from any guilt whatsoever. The law specifies it. If he comes in and he does this because of the reason of jealousy, he puts us to the test. He is well within his right to do so. He wrote the law. He's following the law. He's the husband, and he has the right to be jealous. Now, a lot of people you know, teach that uh, jealousy is not a good trait, you know, and they certainly don't want their God to have that trait. But our God does have that trait, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with a man being jealous of his wife if she's unfaithful. It indicates that he loves her. It indicates that he cares for her. You know, it indicates that he, that he places great value in her. And the Lord should be jealous for us. But we should also be respectful of that and be ready so that there won't be issue of that between us. Um, Numbers chapter 6, I'm hustling through here. Numbers chapter 6, it says, um, beginning of verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink, he shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat any fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord he shall not go near to to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. 
a very interesting uh, commandment and law concerning the law of the um, taking this vow, this Nazarite vow. For those of you who may be asking the question, gee, gee, let's see, Jesus of Nazareth, is that the same thing? No, it's not. Nazareth and the Nazarite vow, they are two different words. In the case of the Nazarite, uh, it, is, it means separation, to be separated unto the Lord for this vow. In the case of Nazareth, which is Nazareth, that is a different word, which means to spring up like a root. You remember the prophecy that says, he shall be like a sprout out of the root of Jesse? When Nathaniel asked the question, can anything good come from Nazareth, in making reference to uh, in making reference to Yeshua, he was forgetting that there's a very specific messianic prophecy that says the Messiah shall be a sprout that comes up from the root of Jesse. And in fact, in the Shema Esrei, which is a long uh, liturgical prayer, uh, the Hebrews pray that the sprout would flourish, that the sprout of Jesse would flourish and grow and grow to fullness. That's the meaning of Nazareth, of the city of Nazareth where Yeshua is coming from. But this is a meaning it has to mean unto separation. Over and above all the things that I've told you about with regard to the priests, the priests had to be separated from the sons of Israel under certain things. Now, this was even further separation from that, but this is voluntary. If a Hebrew man wanted to make a special vow to the Lord, I vow to the Lord, I will accomplish this thing, then in the days of his separation to be dedicated unto it to assure that it happens, it says these are the following things he will do. And there's really three parts to this whole thing. There's the making of the vow, there's the all the days of the vow that is to be fulfilled, and the fulfillment of the vow, and it works something like this. He makes the vow, and from that point, no harming of the hair. No trimming of the hair, no trimming of the beard, none of the bodily hairs are trimmed or cut. And you start, after about 30 days, start looking like a homeless person, so that everybody can see. It's people are to see it. They're to see that you've been separated unto something, and they might come up to you and say, "What is your vow? What is this, what is the service that you're rendering?" And you might share with them what that service is. And actually, what brethren would do is they would kind of step away and allow you to complete it. In other words, if there was some assistance or whatever, they they would they know that you've now dedicated yourself under this task. They they don't hinder you. They don't they don't do anything to perturbate you know you doing it. They they give you the room to do it. You're not more righteous. You're just fulfilling a vow that you've made unto the Lord. Now let me explain a little bit further about vows. A vow is different from a promise whether you realize that or not. When you make a vow, you don't. first of all, you don't make very many vows in your life. You make them when you get married. You might make them when you're full of great emotion over something, but you don't do this very often. And the Lord says concerning this business about vows, when you make a vow, the Lord himself will require it of you. It's not like a promise. A promise has conditions. When you make a vow, you're just going to do it. Regardless of what the outcome is, regardless of whether anybody's for it or against it, or there's no other conditions, we're just going to do it. 
Whether they do anything or not, you're going to do it. You're going to complete it. It's an act of your will. Here's what the powerful thing is, the, the reason why a vow is different from a promise. A promise is in the present tense. The promise says, if you will do such and such, I will do such and such. Whenever that, whenever those things happen, that's when we'll complete it. But a vow is you take a piece of the future and you pull it right down to the present and you create the reality of that right now. You have the power to go out and speak a word and take the future and change the reality of the world around you. That's what happens when people get married. When they make a vow to get married, they're not making a promise in the future, I will love you and keep you and so forth. No, they're making a vow that says, I will do this. And as a result, all that the future could hold is suddenly pulled down to the present and the reality of marriage is created. And the whole rest of the world, from that moment on, they will say, you're married. And they will treat you as married and they will act like you're married for years to come. That time is like, is no longer has a meaning. Because you've grabbed a hold of the future and pulled it down to the reality and you've created a new reality. The reason why the Lord says be very careful about your doing because this is the same power he used to create the heavens and the earth. He spoke and it happened. When you speak a vow, it's happening. It's going to happen. It is a reality now. You can't change that. If you try to break a vow, it's like trying to get a divorce. You just have to rip the shred of reality apart. That's the reason why the divorces don't work so good. There's no perforated line that says this is where you break out. You have to tear the reality of life, of family, of friends. You have to just rip it apart, shred it. And that's the reason why vows are very special. When you make a vow, you do it. The Lord requires it because you've changed his creation. The world now is a different place as a result of your vow. Because you now have you exercised the same authority of God and you've spoken and it has been changed forever. And until it is completed, it remains an open issue, you know, before the Lord. When a Nazarite would make a vow, he was then separated unto this special purpose to complete it. All things were set aside. He was no longer permitted to drink of the cup of joy, wine or strong drink or any sort of liqueur. He's supposed to be focused to accomplish this task. And he is to be focused on it until it is done. To the extent that he couldn't even eat grapes. I mean, that's how much of an abstention it was. You can't even eat the grape seed or its skin. Nothing associated with it until this is completed. Now, interestingly, Paul took Nazarite vows. It's recorded for us in Acts 21 that when he returned to Jerusalem, his purpose for returning was to go to the temple and complete a Nazarite vow. And when he met with James and the other brethren before going in, and they had there was a rumor that had risen up that he was not a keeper of the law, that Paul didn't keep the law, that he was telling the sons of Israel out into the scattered lands that they did not have to circumcise their sons any longer. This rumor had risen up, and he had to put the rumor to an end. And James made the suggestion. He says, look, he said, um, I know how to do that. I know how we can get that rumor turned around. We have four 
Messianic Jews here under Nazarite vows who must go into the temple right now. Why don't you go with them and you pay their expenses? And Paul went in and was completing his Nazarite vows along with four other Messianic Jews when he was arrested. The day he was arrested, he didn't have no hair on his head. He was bald. Because the completion of the Nazarite vow was that you went into the temple and all your hair was cut off of your body. Your beard was cut off, your you know head hair was cut off, all your bodily hair was removed, and that was placed upon the altar. And there were certain sacrifices that you had to render. The total price on these sacrifices, my understanding is that a price, now this is the reason why you didn't make Nazarite vows very often, the price to pay for the sacrifices and all of the service for you to complete the Nazarite vow was an annual salary. So when he paid for the expenses for four other Messianic Jews to prove to the Messianic Jews there is nothing to this rumor that Paul doesn't keep the law, he was paying four annual salaries plus his own. Now, if you want to get rid of a rumor about you, would you be willing to pay such a price? Interesting. And it had to do with this Nazarite vow, the fulfillment of it, and the procedures. The procedures are given here. Since the destruction of the temple, there is no recorded evidence of any Jewish man ever completing a Nazarite vow. Isn't that interesting? But the Lord says, you know, that if a man makes a vow, if a son of Israel makes a vow, that this is what's supposed to be done. It's one of the issues uh, with regard to the absence of the temple that affects, uh, affects all of Israel. By the way, I read a very interesting article um, not too long ago where the Orthodox Jews were saying that we need to hold a conference um, the whole business of the temple getting restarted, there is a possibility it could get restarted. And, and this rabbi was basically making the argument, we need to have a conference because you know, of course, that there are many of our rabbinical traditions that are in conflict with Moses. And if we're going to have a temple, we're going to have to go back to obeying Moses. And we better start figuring out what we're going to do and how we're going to resolve all these questions that are going to be raised up. And one of them had to do with the Nazarite vows, you know, and how to render it properly. I find it fascinating that uh, they're starting to ask those questions about maybe we need to sit and talk about this a little bit, you know, because they're going back and having to be refreshed with what Moses has taught. Now we come to one of my favorite areas. There are two very, very favorite places that I have in the Torah. One of them is the, what is called the Aaronic Blessing, which is in this portion, and the other is the Shema, which is in the book of Deuteronomy. And they're kind of my my encouragers as the, as the Torah cycle kind of winds down for the year. They're the reasons that I get excited about the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy. And this particular portion is the Aaronic Blessing, and it's found in Numbers chapter 6, at verse 22, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, and this is the blessing that is to be said, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. 
Now, if you go into virtually any synagogue, any major assembly of believers, more often than not, you will hear this blessing said. It's kind of fundamental toward the, as a part of the service. It is the, the most solemn, holy way for a leader of an assembly to try to do something good, you know, for the people of that assembly, for the speaker, is to speak this blessing. Now, there's many traditions associated with this. It's very traditional. Uh, but I think that uh, it, it's, we may, either we have heard it enough times that we've just glossed over it, or we just have never really taken the time to stop and consider what it really says. And for this evening, I would like to uh, take a few moments and, and re-examine this. There are three parts to this blessing. Isn't that fascinating? Three parts to this great blessing. There are actually six lines, and six times you are mentioned. You know, you know what is the real great pursuit of every person in the world? You know what really, truly motivates every person in the world? They want the blessing. They want something good to happen to them. They want something good to happen to them. And a lot of us are kind of motivated out of that selfish nature to want to always want for us. The thing that I find so interesting about this is the emphasis that God puts. He says, I'm going to give this to you. It's for you. Not for the other guy standing by you, for you, you specifically, you sitting there. I'm going to put it on you. I'm going to give you the blessing. God knows he's created us to need this blessing. It's part of our destiny to be fulfilled and receive this blessing. Part of God's purpose, it's for us to be completely spiritually satisfied. If you bless you, it's not as satisfying as someone else blesses you. If you give yourself something good, it's never tastes as sweet as if someone voluntarily gives it to you. A gift is always better than if you just simply went down and bought it for yourself. And besides that, when you go down and try to get this one for yourself, you can't get it. It's one of those interesting things. This one's not for sale. You can't go win it. You can't go earn it. You just have to be. You have to be in the camp of God. And God has already instructed the priest to put it upon them. It's one of the benefits. It's our inheritance. It's our inheritance in the Lord to receive this blessing. I have heard a study that was done, and it says that the number one reason why that children become disobedient and grow up to be criminals is because they didn't get the blessing. You don't get the blessing, it has very disturbing effects on your life. You will for the rest of your life try to be make up for that missed blessing. Children need to have the blessing of their father and their mother. We, the sons of God, must have the blessing of our father. If you think that you can get through your spiritual life without this blessing, I have news for you, you won't make it. So it's pretty important. Here's the three parts. The first part, 
the Lord bless you and keep you. So what's the word bless means? Well, it's what you've been looking for. It's contentment. It's happiness. And it's a very active verb, which means the Lord put life on you, make you healthy, make you prosperous, make you fill up full of all that you can be. The Lord bless you. Keep you to guard you from evil, from sickness, from poverty, from calamity. Now, I find it kind of fascinating that God knows, God knows that if he blesses you and you get all the good things, you'll just turn right around and go the wrong way. So that's the reason why he says, and keep you. Protect you from the blessing too. Because we're, if, if, if this modern day, we're just like the sons of Israel. The cycle goes like this. God blesses us, we get the blessing, and we go the other way. We use it to walk. We don't need God no more. I got the blessing. What do I need God for? I got, the, I got everything I was looking for. I have got satisfaction. I got contentment. What do I need God for? That is a pretty good question. That's our problem. But the Lord says, and keep you. It's to guard you, to keep you within the blessing so that you continue to receive the blessing. The second part, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. When a face shines on you, it's because he has a smile. You ever walk up, you know, you can read people real easily by the count, by, by their face. You walk up, they have a smile on their face. Oh, it's, it's safe to greet them. It's okay, there's no issue between us. Either that or he's covering it real good. He's, but he's got a smile. He'll receive me. I can receive him. When the Lord walks up to you, may it be that he'll have a smile on his face when he sees you so that it'll be pleasant for you to be in the presence of the Lord, not to be subject to, instead of with a scowl and a frown on his face. You know, you wouldn't want to say, you know, may it be the next time you see God, he has a frown on his face. That would not be a cheerful greeting. Rather, when the Lord comes into your presence, may it be that when he sees you, there's a smile on his face. Oh, there's my son, the one I love, the obedient one, the one with no guile. And may he be gracious to you. The word gracious, may he fulfill your petition. The things that you ask, may he, may he render to you what you've asked for. So he has a smile on his face, and you say, oh, Lord, do you remember that request I made for you about, you know, I need to get my car fixed? Oh, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, you know, may be gracious to you. I want to do those things for you. Now, there's both material as well as spiritual blessing that's embedded in all of this. Can you see that? The material things, the things you need, daily bread, shelter, health, all, you know, may you have all those blessings but also spiritual blessings, things like joy and love and, and all the good things, you know, that happen inside of you. The Aaronic blessing, the priestly blessing that is put upon the children of Israel and put upon all those who are of the camp of Israel, all those who belong to the Lord, when it's all said and done, when the blessing is pronounced over you, the last thing you get is a gift. Better than any gift you could get from anywhere else. And gifts are always better than if you went out and got it for yourself. You can't get this peace if you go out and strive for it. 
but it can be given to you. And the Lord is the one who gives it to us. It is said that when the person speaks this blessing, that they don't put the blessing on the person. It says that when this person sat and he raises his arms and he speaks this blessing upon the children of uh, God, it says that the Lord is standing directly beside him and it is he who is putting the blessing. Isn't that an interesting vision? That all he is is the messenger of the blessing that's coming from the Lord. Then it is a for sure thing that the blessing is coming. It is a for sure thing. Then he says... Uh, he adds to this last party. It's not part of the benediction, benediction or this erroneous blessing. But I want to point it out to you because there's a very fascinating teaching in it. Verse 27, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them. What name? He's speaking. He says, when this blessing goes out, my name will be invoked. Where's God's name in there? I don't see God's name in there. This just says, the Lord bless you, keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Where's the Lord's name? Well, you might be able to say, if you're messianic, that maybe that peace is the prince of the peace comes from the prince of peace. But that'd be a little bit of a stretch. Let me tell you what the real teaching of this is. Everybody struggles... Um, to want to be Jewish or like Jewish things. And nobody knows why. I mean, you don't want to be Jewish. Believe me, the world is full of anti-Semites trying to kill you if you go around saying you're Jewish. Why in the world would you want to be Jewish? But there's such a conflict over it. Everybody wants to be. Many well-meaning Gentiles, they, you know, they got into British Israelism. They want to be the lost tribes of Israel. I don't know if you know this, but the Jehovah's Witnesses think that's what they are. The Mormons think that's what they are. The church teaches they're the new Israel. We're, we're, we're God's chosen people now. Everybody wants the blessing. But let me tell you what this verse means. It says this is a prophecy. This is a prophecy. It says there was a day coming when the name of God would be put over the top of the sons of Israel. And by the way, it has been done. Why don't we call everybody who is of the sons of Israel, why don't we call them Israelites? Why do we call them Jews? Why do we name all of the tribes, Levites and all, to be of the tribe of Judah or of the land of Judah? Why is it? It's because there's a little hidden meaning in the name Judah. In the name Judah is the name of God, the unspeakable name of God. In the Hebrew, the name Judah is spelled yod Hey bavet dalet Hey. Five letters. The letter Dalet means the doorway to, or the door of. yod Hey vav Hey is the unspeakable name of God. Those are the other four letters in the name Judah. The Jewish people, when they got called Jews, they had the name Judah put over the top of them. They're all called of Judah. And in it is the unspeakable name of God laid over the top of all the people who belong to Israel, and they're called Jews, short for Judah. Isn't that fascinating? You take the letter Dalit out of the name Yehuda, and you have the unspeakable name of God. You have the tetragrammet. So the rabbis teach the reason why we're called Jews 
is because Moses said the day would come when God would invoke and put his name over the top of every one of us. And the unspeakable name is over the top of every Jewish person. If you're called Jew, it means you have that name over the top of you. It's like the keeper, right over the top of you. And it's a testimony like the keeper. The keeper means the covering of the Lord. It's been put over the top. And just like the name, the unspeakable name, it's been put over the top of all of the sons of Jacob when they're called Jews. Isn't that fascinating? Knew this, knew we had this all the time. That's the reason why all the Gentiles want to be the true Jews. That's the reason why you want to be a true Jew. Because you'll have the name of God right over the top of you. And where God places his name, that's what he owns. That's what belongs to him. That's what has the blessing. The things that have his name over the top is what gets the blessing. And everybody wants the blessing. They didn't realize what it was about, but that's why, that's the motivation. That's the reason why it's there. Uh, another little twist on the name, you know, the name Judah means praise. And uh, in the Hebrew transliteration method, you say, Ali, la, Alleluia, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Yehuda, Yehuda. It's the same word. Hallelujah is just a transliteration way of saying the name Judah. That's all it is. You're just saying Judah, Judah, Judah over and over again when you say hallelujah. It's just you're kind of slurring the, the syllables in effect. Um, isn't that kind of fascinating? That was part of the reason why the name Judah has taken such prominence, and it's because of this, this blessing that is put here to invoke the name of God upon the sons of Israel. And it is in such that I will bless them. In that method that I will bless them for it. All my life I've been going around waiting for this big blessing. You know, I got the name. Okay, Lord, lay it on me. I think the reason why he hasn't laid on me, I don't think I can bear it yet. Can't quite bear all the blessing yet. Now we come to um, uh, chapter uh, 7. Like I said, this is one of the longest portions there is. Great teach. I'm, I'm not really rendering proper justice to all the things I would like to teach you in these portions, but I'm just going to try to briefly hit them. We come to an interesting part where uh, the 12 tribes of Israel now, the tabernacle has been set up and the 12 tribes of Israel come to do a dedication service, a dedication to the altar. Not to the Ark of the Covenant, not to the tabernacle, to the altar. And they come one tribe per day. The tabernacle has been set up and now each tribe comes forward and they dedicate and they bring these particular gifts uh, for the dedication. Uh, it's fascinating when you listen to the uh, thing it, because it, the way th there's a whole great big chapter seven that just goes through verse after verse. And that's the reason why it's such a long. Um, there's 89 verses in chapter seven. You know, you can win a lot of trivia points. You know, if somebody asks you, how is the, what's the chapter with the, in the Torah with the greatest number of verses? Numbers chapter 7, 89 verses. 
And why so many verses? Because it says this. I will read first for the uh, on the first day, beginning at verse 12. Now the one who presented his offering on the first day was Nakshan, the son of Aminadav, of the tribe of Judah, and his offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for a sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Nakshan, the son of Aminandav. And then it repeats the name of the next prince and is exactly the same gift. On the second day, it says, of the sons of Issachar, he brought these exact same things. Third day, of Zebulun, he brought these exact same things. Fourth day, of Reuben, he brought these exact same things. This is the chapter that has more commentary written on it than any other chapter in all of the Torah. It's amazing. It says exactly the same thing 12 times over. Yet in the commentary, the writing of the rabbis and the sages of Israel, they write more about these words than all any other chapter in Torah. These gifts that were brought in for the dedication of the altar. And it's not about the altar, it's about the gifts. It's about a silver dish, 130 shekels in value. One silver basin with flour, 70 shekels in value. One gold pan for incense, one young bull, one ram, one he lamb, one male goat, and so on. In the commentary, what they do is this. They go through the blessings that each tribe has received from Israel, and they find clues in these gifts as to what these gifts mean to that tribe. The number 130 shekels means this to this tribe. The number 10 shekels for the gold pan means this to this tribe. Let me give you a taste of it. In the case of Issachar, they say that uh, that the, the special gift that is of great meaning to them is the silver basin full of flour. Because the flour will be used to be made into bread. And the Lord has taught us that we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall a man live. And it was Issachar who's known most for their scholarship of the Torah. Of all of the tribes, that's their kind of their mark of honor. That's the thing they're known for. Issachar is known for their great sages of the Torah. They're great teachers of the Torah. And it is said that they knew best how to take the flour to make it into bread to eat the daily offering of the Lord. And they knew how to be nourished by that far better than the others. And that this came to be of great meaning to Issachar. It's part of the blessing from, from Jacob. The, uh, they go through and they teach that the bull represents the work of the priests, that the ram represents the work of the Levites, that the lamb represents the Israelites. Now listen to this. 
They also represent that the kid of the goat represents a Gentile who comes to study the Torah. And they say that a Gentile who comes to study the Torah, who's willing to dedicate the altar, that he is rendered and regarded equivalent to the high priest of Israel in honor. Isn't that interesting? There's some fascinating teaching they've got in here. These gifts made to the altar. Embedded in them are understandings and meanings, very deep meanings, about their relationship with God because they're talking about the gifts that they give to the altar. This is where their relationship with God is being dealt with, with the altar. And even though it's the exact same listing of the gift, the teaching that comes with each one is built off of the individuality of that individual tribe, of that prince who came and who he represents. And, and even though you present the exact same gift to God as your brother does, before the Lord there is a special meaning with your gift regard to you before him. God doesn't treat your gift. I want to say he gave a hundred bucks this week. Let's see, uh, those guys over there, we had 47 people who gave a hundred bucks this week. Uh-uh. No, it's by your name you gave $100, and this is what it means to me with you, regardless of what anybody else gave. It's kind of fascinating that the Lord looks at the gift and who is bringing it with such detail that he sees distinctiveness, even though you bring the exact same thing as someone else. You remember if I've tried to teach you before about gifts, that the value of the gift is always determined by the giver. It's what you put into it. You can give a little thing, but put great value into it. You can give a much, put no value into it. The gift is always determined by the giver. So what is the value of the gift that has been given by um, the God of heaven and earth for you? What is the value of that gift? It's determined by him not you. Determined by him. He's the one who sets and makes it a priceless value gift for you. Um, it, once you learn to be a gracious receiver and learn these rules of giving, then you learn to place the value on the gift. And even though it be widow's mites before the Lord, it can be everything. You know, the Lord tells us in the economics that he has that the value of a man's soul is greater than all the profit of the world. You know, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And he's making the insinuation that your soul is worth more than all the profit of the world. The giver is the one who determines the value of the gift. And it is here that each one are going forth and they look at the blessing they've received from Jacob, their father. They look at what is the mark of their name and their relationship with God. What is the value of their life? What are the things, what are their services to God? And even though it's one silver dish and one silver basin and one gold pan and one young bull and one ram and one he goat and one male goat, it still means something. Even though it be the same, it has a great value that's rendered to it. It's fascinating that, that the greatest commentary 
on the Torah. The most lengthy commentary on the Torah is about trying to learn the lesson of giving a gift. Try to learn to give a gift. I really believe that one of the hallmarks in spiritual maturity is to learn to give. It really is. It's one of the hallmarks. It's because once you learn to give, you're able to give of you. You're able to give of little things here to help. And you're able to then increase the value greatly of the thing that you would give and render to another person. You're the one. But if you don't learn to give, you're just, you're just shoveling stuff. You're just transporting stuff from one place to the next. So if you're going to become the man of God that God wants you to be, he wants you to learn how to give. I believe the only way you can learn how to give is to learn how to receive. you got to get this blessing and you got to get this gift. And once you get the gift, then you learn to give from it. It is at this time that the tribes of Israel then go forward, and there's a very interesting listing. Let me just read and rattle it off for you very quickly. Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Reuben, Zimeon, Gad, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. And they ask the question, why this order? Why wasn't it by the most oldest? Why wasn't it the tribe of Reuben first? Or why didn't it match the blessing of Genesis 49? If Jacob blessed him in a certain order, why doesn't it match that, that order of the blessing? What, why isn't it that one? Why isn't it not necessarily match the order of the tribes of Israel somewhere else? Why is there a separate list? Because this is the part they determine. They have placed the value. And part of the reason why that they say that Judah was the first is because it goes back to that Judah was the first to cross the Red Sea. When it comes to salvation, Judah was first to receive salvation from the Lord. While the rest of them are arguing, they see the, the Red Sea opened up and the dry land before, and they're all wondering, who, oh, I'm not going to go, you know, it's like, uh, let's get Mikey to eat it first, you know. You know, who's going to go first? And they're all hesitating. <laughs> Walk out there and then walls of water hit me. Well, somebody's got to go first. Somebody's got to prove it. Somebody's got to put their weight on it. It was Nakshan the chief captain of the tribe of Judah, who jumped in first and said, follow me, let us go. It was Judah who was the first who was ready to lay down his life for Benjamin, his brother, when he had to have the judgment. And there was a son of Judah who was first to lay down his life for the salvation of all of Israel. And as a result, it's the name of Judah that the Lord put upon all of the sons of Israel so that they all might be recipients of the blessing, the salvation, and the things that God is trying to do, that they might follow the example to be the first uh, as he was. So it is he is first to go and do the dedication of the altar. Now, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but there's a very interesting governmental thing that has taken place. This is how theocracy is instituted. Theocracy, the governmental system where God is the government, 
It's not like democracy or socialism or communism. This is theocracy. And the way theocracy is established is just because you establish heads of fathers and heads of families and tribes and so forth, the thing that differentiates is that each one then now goes forward. Each father, each prince now goes forward to the God and receives his authority from there and is dedicated. It wasn't all of them at the same time, one at a time. This is when theocracy was established. It took 12 days to do it. When God goes to reestablish theocracy in these end days, he uses a very unique and interesting group of people to do it with. It says that he will put a seal. Instead of them who came into the altar putting a seal on the altar, it says that in the future there will be an altar that will be stopped, and then he will then take the seal from the altar and he will put it upon them. And it's written up for us in Revelation chapter 7. And it goes in and it says, it doesn't say he seals 144,000 sons of Israel. It says he seals 12 tribes, 12,000 of each. And that he seals first the tribe of Judah, and then the tribe of Reuben, and the tribe of Gad. And you know what I think when that actually happens, when those days actually come, I think there will be 12 consecutive days of that happening. Just like this altar was being sealed and dedicated here. I think there will be a separate, distinct day for the sealing of the 144,000. Because God will be reestablishing theocracy on the world. He'll be marking those that represent his government and who are the ones who possess the land to put it in dispute to say that it is the Lord's. The uh, whole fascinating study can be made about that, but the parallels between this chapter, <laughs> this chapter here, Numbers chapter 7, and the parallels to Revelation chapter 7 are incredible. And there's a reason why there should be a lot of commentary on this. Because there's a whole lot of commentary about these 144,000 and what's going to happen with them. God says that when this whole thing is over and done with, to show you the significance of that to him. God says that when it, when it gets done, he says that the millennial kingdom and new Jerusalem is going to be marked by three specific elements in the wall that will memorialize the Lord and memorialize the work of the Lord. The first is that he will name the 12 gates after these 12 tribes. He will name 12 foundation stones after the 12 apostles. And then he says that he will make the height of the wall 144 cubits. That's the number of the 144,000. The prophecies say of the 144,000 in the future that they will be precious stones making up the wall of defense. Fascinating. And that New Jerusalem will be memorialized when it's all said and done by three great things. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, and the 144,000. That the role that they will perform will be equivalent to the role that has been on your spiritual faith of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. That's fascinating because the 12 tribes of Israel got a lot to do with your faith. And the 12 apostles have a lot to do with your faith. And the 144,000 will also have a lot to do with your faith. The prophecies go on to say that because of their affection toward the altar, 
that that's the reason that they're sealed. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, it says that God will dispatch an angel who will go out and seal all those men who sigh and groan at the abominations taking place in this sanctuary at this altar. Because they're committed to this altar before the Lord. And because there is desecration taking place, they sigh, they groan, and God then puts a seal upon them. Just as much as they put the seal upon the altar way back these many days ago. Now, they aren't the same men. They aren't Nakshan and, and uh, so forth. Whether they are his sons. And it's the connectivity between fathers and sons that they bear the same name, that they carry out the same theocracy, you know, which goes forward. There's a lot to this chapter. There's a lot to the meaning and the understanding. It is part of our future. I tell you, there is a day coming. <laughs> when you will go to Jerusalem and there will be an altar that will be ready to receive your sacrifice that has been properly dedicated and restored again. It's going to be part of your new, new covenant faith in the millennial kingdom. And in the millennial kingdom, we'll have one more covenant. Did you know that? There's a promise of one more covenant to come from God. I've always wondered about this. Um, how my ancestors must have sat around and said, well, you know, Jeremiah the prophet has said there's supposed to be a new covenant. What's it called? Well, it's called the new covenant. Well, what, what, what kind of a covenant is? I mean, we've got a great covenant now with Moses. What, what kind of covenant is this? Well, it's a new covenant. It says God's going to take his commandments and he's going to write them on the tablets of our heart. Wow. That's an interesting covenant. You mean the very spirit of God will be inside of you? I mean, you will be like the tabernacle because the, because the commandments are sitting over there in the Ark of the Covenant right over there in the temple. You mean to tell me that those commandments that are written on those stone tablets are going to be written on our hearts? And the presence of God will be, yes, that's what, that's what kind of a covenant he's promised. Wow, that'll be an incredible covenant. I always wondered, you know, they, I don't think they ever really got the essence of it. I think later after the Messiah came and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, then they started to get it. But beforehand, they couldn't get it. You know, we have another one waiting for us. We don't think about it either. We don't talk about it. It's a, but it's a wonderful covenant that's getting ready to come. You know what it's called? The covenant of shalom. The covenant of peace. You see this verse here where it says, and I will give you peace. Man, you ain't even come close to what the Lord has got planned for you. You can't even imagine what it will be like when he puts a whole covenant of this stuff upon you thousand years peace no tears no death if you want to know the Lord everybody knows the Lord if you want to talk to the Lord go talk to the Lord the Lord's right over there in Jerusalem go talk to him peace no hassles life prosperity blessing gracious you walk up to him in Jerusalem, he's going to see you. He's going to put a big smile on his face. He knows you. You walk up there the first time and say, I don't know if he knows me or not. I don't know. I haven't been here before. He's going to see you. He's going to greet you by name. Oh, come in. Come. What would you like? Then you get the blessing. That's when you get the real gift of peace, the covenant of peace that comes upon you. 
Interesting, isn't it? Boy, if we could get a vision of that. You know, I think it would really kind of affect us. You know, I think it would change our daily. I think, I think we'd, we'd start to weigh our problems and say, you know, I don't think they're really all that tough anymore. Well, all we have to do is just get through this. We don't have to make it perfect here. Perfect comes later. And the Lord does it. I don't even have to do it. That's what we have waiting for us. That's our destiny. There's a lot in this chapter. There's a lot in this portion. And brethren, I've just barely scratched the surface. It's a really a wonderful Torah portion. I am looking forward to the day when I get to see that altar go up again. Because I know it has to do with these things here. It has to do with these blessings. Isn't it ironic that most people theologically don't look forward to it? They don't think that an altar in Jerusalem would be a good thing. And then we'll have World War III. That's right, we will. The Bible says so. There's going to be world war as a result. And then the king comes back and then cleans up this mess in a forest. Amen? I look forward to that day. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this Torah portion. Thank you, Lord, for your many, many blessings. Thank you, Lord, for the altar. Thank you for the blessing, Lord, that you give to us freely. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of peace. And, Lord, we have named our congregation, our assembly here, the, the sons of peace, the children of peace. And, Lord, I would pray that we would live up to the meaning uh, of our name, that you might pour out a blessing upon us, that we might be a blessing to this community, that we might give of ourselves to others, to raise up others before you, that we might take up, like the Gershomites and the Merorites and the Kohanites lifted up the tabernacle, that we might lift up our own brethren, the tabernacle of God, and raise it up before you. Help us, Lord, to, um, to understand the real meaning of these passages of Torah. Help us, Lord, to implement them. We ask this all in the name of the Prince of Peace, Yeshua. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.